Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 28th, we are studying Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Several times in the epistle to the Romans, St. Paul has proclaimed God's love for us. This love that God has for us produces love within us. In today's text, St. Paul illustrates what such Christian love looks like. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be back, as always. As we get started this morning, Pastor Cook, give us some context here in the book of Romans. How does this text relate to what's come right before to the, the book as a whole? Sure. Uh, well, the, governing the text today is the beginning of chapter 12, where Paul makes his appeal uh, on the foundation of the mercies of God. So that's the starting point. And then he tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, uh, which is our, uh, you know, wordly worship or spiritual worship as it's occasionally translated. And so don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewal of our mind. So this is a further exploration or explication of what that uh, renewal of our mind is. Um, This is what it looks like when we do not have, uh, when we're not transformed by the world. So that's where we're at. And then the following context is we, we move immediately into a question about submission to authority and the Christian perspective on submission to authority is its own almost otherworldly position. Mm. But Mm. I don't have to talk about that because Romans 13 is reserved for someone else. (laughs) That's right. We won't, we won't make you, (laughs) we won't make you do someone else's job today. So let's, let's, let's go. Although I think we we might touch on it a little bit towards the end in terms of the, the transition. Uh, But, but yeah, we'll, we'll save that for tomorrow's guest. So let's, let's go ahead and, and read this text. Romans 12 verses nine through 21. Paul writes, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the text for today, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. So, Pastor Cook, as we get started, a couple of of questions just as the text as a whole, overarching. One, well... It, it's a it's just a string of, of commands it seems I mean even just reading it it sometimes feels it's really short one after the other just give us a, a big picture overview of this text sure I would say that it is 
uh, I will run with an analogy here that I'm stealing from uh, N.T. Wright uh, in a commentary he wrote on First Peter. He he tells the story of when he wakes up in his dorm room the first day he's at college or the university and how he is about to learn a new language and he's about to pursue a new kind of life. And so he wakes up on that first day and he has to go about the task of learning what it means to live as a university student and a scholar. And he compares that um, in his commentary on First Peter to uh, what it looks like to show brotherly love and uh, things of that sort. And what the re- regenerated life is a new Christian who's been ransomed from the feudal ways uh, of our forefathers. And so we get a similar thing here. And anyone who's been married can relate to that feeling. Uh, you wake up after you're married and all of a sudden there's something different now. Uh, you're married. And so you, you kind of have to figure this thing out and, and live it out. And your marriage uh, isn't dependent it's not like if you get all these things right, then you get to be married. You're already married. You're just learning what that life of marriage looks like. And so we have been uh, redeemed by God um, through his son, Jesus Christ, the suffering, death, resurrection. And we have uh, died to sin and let it no longer rule in our body. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and... Um, so that's this is our new identity. Who are we? And as we're kind of figuring this new life out that is contrary to the one that we've been redeemed from, this is what it looks like. So that would be my overview of what's going on here. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's helpful. Some sometimes, if I can speak theologically and use some some words that just sometimes get thrown around, it it sounds like what you described is what we would often talk about in terms of justification and sanctification. So in the first part of Romans, Paul addresses a lot concerning what our justification is, that God in his grace has given his righteousness to us by faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's turning more toward sanctification. That is, as you said, what is that new life that God has given? What does that look like as the Christian lives in this world? And he's already made that contrast between our former life and now being transformed. And now he's describing what it actually looks like. So justification and sanctification, is is that, in terms of shorthand, is that what you're talking about here, Pastor Cook? Uh, yeah, I might, I might quit. <laughs> I might quibble on the sanctification language, just because it seems to be heavy and loaded. Um, I, I would say, I, I like the way the Lutheran Confessions will, will just say the new obedience, which, I, which is getting a lot of the same thing, but I, I like that terminology better. So, but yes, that's what I'm getting at. Okay. The, the biggest thing that we, re- we always want to stress, and because Paul does here, uh, is I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So anything, any attempt to make this somehow a prerequisite for the favor, the grace, or salvation is wrong. Hmm. And so uh, even the sanctification follows justification. Um, we, we always have to keep those things in the proper order. And so the, our pastoral concern Uh, or a Christianly concern would be, uh, you might look at this list, and because the law has a tendency to always accuse us, um, it's not hard uh, for us to look at this list and say, ooh, I'm not very good at that. Or, as is frankly far more common, you look at this list and then identify somebody who also worships in the congregation you're at, and you're like, yeah, they're not good at this either. Uh, so we're really quick to point out other people's failures before looking <laughs> at our own. And um, that's why in my ESV Bible, there's a heading over verse 9 um, that was, it says, marks of a true Christian. And uh, I, hate, I 
very, very strongly dislike that heading. I don't think it's helpful at all, as though somehow the validity or the genuineness of our um, identity in Christ is dependent upon the way that we uh, live. Mm. Uh, the NIV uh, Bible just had the heading, Love, which is much better. And then I would just like to point out that marks of the true Christian, neither the words marks, true, nor Christian appear in these verses. So I, I don't know what the editors were thinking when they, when they slapped that uh, heading on there, um, but I will make an argument, <clears throat> uh, which is unassailable, that uh, let, let the listener understand. Um, no, it, the, the headings are really designed as a, way, a quick reference guide. That's really what they're doing. Uh, they're not intended to be um, commentary on the text um, and things of that, of that sort. So I, I want to offer some grace. But as any pastor who's helped shepherd his people through uh, craving the pure milk of God's Word, they know that the headings are they really shape the way people read the text, mm-hmm. um, whether that's what they were designed to do or not. I don't think that's what they're designed to do, but that is an unintended consequence of them. So, um, yeah, I don't, don't, don't make your, am I truly, really, actually a Christian? Is my identity really in Christ? You know, I, I don't like the doubt that creeps in mm-hmm. uh, when we speak this way. And this this is not in any way, Paul is not, trying to get people to doubt who they are. Hmm. And it, that's not what he's doing here. This is exhortation. This is encouragement. The, hey, let's, let's go do this. You know, like a bunch of guys getting together to barbecue uh, on Labor Day, pre-pandemic days, uh, right? You just get together and, man, we're going to roast a pig and it's going to be awesome and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to laugh and we're going to enjoy the camaraderie and we're going to enjoy good food. Uh, nobody's looking at that as, oh, this is all just a big ploy to get us to doubt our manliness or something mm. like that. So mm. it, it's a joy. I mean, it's this is uh, by the mercies of God, this is what we're set up to do. Mm. That, that's a that's a helpful, a couple of helpful, helpful things there to take us back to the mercies of God at the beginning and to, to recognize, as you said, that the titles that are there in our English translations are not part of the inspired text. They are put there by editors. As you said, I think to just to break it up a little bit for us and to quickly identify, hopefully, what's happening in a particular section. It's been a while since we've had a conversation like this on Sharper Iron, but we did this regularly when it came to the parables of Jesus. Jesus' parables are often yeah. given titles, and sometimes those and that's not wrong, as you said, even here. But sometimes those titles will color the way we come at a text for good or for ill. And here, your suggestion, I think, is well well spoken and well taken, that marks of a true Christian is probably not the most helpful title that we could give to this section, particularly given what Paul says. Perhaps... And I, I looked up the NIV as well. It just says love. Perhaps a, a better comparison to this section in Romans 12, and here is, is a, maybe a more familiar text to us, is 1 Corinthians 13, which is often Agreed. used at, at weddings. And there the ESV does say the way of love, which seems like a f- better title for this section too. Yep, I, I completely agree. And along those same lines, uh, we were having a discussion before we started recording about whether these, you know, concerning the imperatival force or the command, n- the nature of them. And we're, well, the Greek, they have these as participles. Well, if you spent time in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that's a whole st- participles too. There's so much similarity uh, on that front um, that it's worth, it's worth pointing out. So I think it's, um, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up. So. So one one more question in terms of the overarching look at this text. As you read it, and you said there there are participles, there are imperatives. In the English, they get translated as imperatives, as commands. And when you read through it, it is 
one right after the other. Sometimes it feels a bit choppy. Is there a is there a structure to the way that these commands, these descriptions of Christian love are laid out? Nothing. So I, I try to read the text before I consult what other people who are smarter than me have said about it in commentaries. And I did not find anything particularly uh, structure-oriented other than the, the last set par- portion, um, really beginning with verse uh, 14. So uh, 14 through 21 is very much revolving around the concept of vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Mm. Uh, that's what I noticed before I consulted commentaries. Uh, one commentary I consulted that uh, was pretty convincing to me was lumping this text in with the previous portion, 3 through 8, where it's kind of the faith-hope-love mm. uh, structure, and so we've got uh, faith at the beginning, we've got uh, love in the middle, and then hope uh, in, at the end. Um, and I thought, well, that, uh, that's someone smarter than I am. That was, <laughs> that was my evaluation. And that someone was Martin Franzman, who is actually smarter than I am. So um, that's okay. But uh, so that, uh, that lends itself. I, I hadn't noticed that. I, I may have if I had spent... Um, more time uh, evaluating it, but that was that would be my uh, shoot from the hip response there. Hmm. All right, well let, let's let's dig in. There's as you said, uh, how many how many are commands? How many are there here, Pastor Cook? There, yeah, there's 31, 30 if you don't count the the command bless both times. Hmm. So thirty kind of unique uh, unique approaches here. So. Um, 23 of them are positive commands, things you should do. Uh, seven of them are commands of stuff you should not do, negative commands. Hmm. Um, so there, there's, uh, there's more than enough to dwell on and work on for the rest of our life. That's right. That's right. So we're going to spend another 40 minutes or so of our lives today dwelling on them and talking about them. So we're, we'll just jump in. And some of them I think we'll spend more on, and some of them we, we may not talk quite as much. But just to get started, the very first thing that Paul says, let love be genuine. That seems to set the tone for the whole chapter, even as we earlier compared it to 1 Corinthians 13. It seems Paul throughout this section is talking about what does genuine Christian love look like? Uh, right. Uh, it looks like serving the neighbor uh, in order to serve the neighbor, uh, rather than serving the neighbor in an effort to promote oneself. Mm. Mm. So that would be uh, that would be the the direction and the genuineness of love. Also, it needs to be in accord with uh, the will of God, which I think is what the next little shot is up to. Mm. Um, or the next uh, command or statement or clause, I guess we would call it. So we're looking at abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, one of the things that I think at least stands out to me, particularly in these first sections, is it's very easy to make these abstract. Love is a very abstract term in English. Evil can be a very abstract term. Good can be a very abstract term. I think Paul has concrete situations in mind, though. How do we how do we take this? I mean, what seems abstract and make these things concrete? Uh, Jesus Christ is going to make these very concrete. Um, so, and we're going to see this. Uh, especially at the end at verse 21 with uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, who is good, but God alone, uh, good teacher. I am the good shepherd, uh, things of, of that sort. So if you're looking for a concrete picture of what love looks like there, there is actually one who did this perfectly. Um, and, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Hmm. So that would be, um, that would be where you would want to go first. That's the, the concrete 
a concrete action. So that when we look at these terms, evil, good, particularly here at the end of verse 9, we want to let Jesus define what that means for us rather than bringing our own preconceived notions of these words into it and importing it and then going off somewhere where the Lord doesn't intend. Yes, leave the words where you find them, like commanding your children not to pull robin's eggs out of the nest. Uh, they're, they're really quite beautiful if you just leave them in the nest. And these words need to be left in their context, and not just the context, the immediate context of Romans chapters 12 and 13, but the context of Paul writing a letter to uh, a Christian community um, who, has, who have been redeemed by, by Christ. So if we want to look again at, uh, if we want to compare this to 1 Corinthians 13, the great love is patient and kind um, passage that's well known by many, uh, I have often remarked that there's really nothing objectionable about that uh, Romans 13. There's a lot of that. Uh, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast. I mean, you could slap those words up on the wall of a mosque and nobody's going to bat an eyelash at them. Mm. And so they, they're they very much just almost sage wisdom, like everybody can really rally behind them. And uh, I think it's what makes it such a popular and enduring uh, text uh, for weddings, uh, Christians and non-Christians alike, is because when you rip them out of the context of what Christ has done for you, they just you can make these words mean whatever you want them to mean, and there's no commitment uh, or identifying ourselves with our Lord Jesus. So you got to keep these words where you find them, and uh, Christ has to be the one who's setting the parameters and the boundaries. So with with that in mind, then, Pastor Cook, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. What What's Paul saying? Uh, sure, I, abhor is great because it's uh, it's a it's strong it's strong verbiage. Um, you know, I have many young children in my home, and they will say something like, "I hate filling food that they don't want to eat," right? Uh, whatever it is, broccoli. And uh, and so you try to tell children that that's not an appropriate verbiage, and then um, reading in Bible devotions at home, they they learn words like abhor and despise. And so my five year old tells me, "Dad, I despise this," and they think they're getting around <laughs> the the rules at home, but it's just like more terrifying. But uh, yeah, the, the abhorrent—it's uh, when we find something abhorrent, it's we we flee from it, we we run away from it. It's we want absolutely nothing to do with it. Um, when you abhor something, you don't even tolerate it. It's just no, I I don't I don't like that at all. And so it says evil is to be treated in that way. Uh, this is not a thing that we uh, court or flirt with. It is, it is a thing that we abhor and avoid um, uh, to, the, to the best of our ability. Now, we can spend the rest of our conversation here if you want to see how this plays out uh, practically, um, because we often are receivers of evil actions, which we're encouraged to endure, even later on in this passage when it talks about vengeance belonging to God rather than ourselves. Um, but then the, the hold fast to what is good, that's the same uh, verb that is used for a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. So now we're back into that marriage imagery that is so prominent in First Corinthians 13. Mm-hmm. Right. So go, keep going. Just keep going. Yeah, they set themselves up. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a stark contrast. One, uh, both sides of the spectrum. Uh, if, you, if you want to understand something by viewing its opposite, uh, there's abhorrence, and then there's the opposite, which is love, uh, specifically a, a marriage-type commitment love. Hmm. That, that's helpful. Good, good. So let's with, with just about a minute before the break, then, let's go into the next one. Love one another with brotherly affection. Take us into that one. 
Um, yeah, you should do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> uh, yeah, lo- love one another with brotherly affection. So now, now we've moved from the marriage uh, kind of imagery to one of uh, sibling imagery. So we we can keep love in its appropriate arenas without moving into uh, deviance uh, of that regard. But uh, the the brotherhood uh, of the saints. Um, this is. Uh, well, this is Peter language, but, uh, you know, this is being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. Love one another with a brotherly love. The word Philadelphia comes from that. So, um, yep, you, you treat treat people as brothers. Is uh, and, and we're in this together. It's, it's a familial language. It's another f- term of family, which is... So- so the the, the body of Christ, the the I mean those those types of images, the family of God, are all coming together here at the the beginning of this text from Romans twelve. You're listening to Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Thursday, May 28th. We are looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 with Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we left off in the middle of verse 10. The next thing Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. So I'm going to win the competition. And I'm going to be better That's at it right. than you, right? Yes, it's it's a uh, it's a friendly, competitive. Hey, let's let's do this. And if you're gonna, it's very very uh, reminiscent of let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, kind of a a concept. But if you're gonna set your heart to doing work uh, as you should do and exercising that love, this is a good way to do it. Uh, show honor uh, and it it becomes a nobody nobody is hurt by this command um, because it only has in view the other person. The only way you win this, uh, if, if, if we want to stick with the competition language, the only way you win this competition is by bu- being a blessing to the most number of people uh, or, you know, quantity over quali- quality over quantity kind of a thing. So, um, the the winner is the one who has honored the most, which means they're looking away from themselves and towards someone else. Which and is the direction of love. the The competition language was was spoken tongue in cheek, as I imagine you oh, you, yeah, you yeah. caught. But but I'm in my mind, I was thinking as I, as I was saying it, I was thinking through the request that James and John bring to Jesus in the Gospels where they ask, or they ask through their mother, for one to sit at the right hand and one to sit at the left hand of Jesus in glory. And Jesus turns that into a matter of instruction concerning what does greatness look like under his reign. Right. I I love this text when I'm doing premarital counseling, hmm. which is, you know, this is, uh, if, if you're approaching marriage as what can I get out of it, it's uh, sure to go wrong in a hurry. Um, but if you approach marriage from the perspective of how can I dedicate my life to making this one other person's life better, um, you it's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. And when it becomes a both people in the marriage are operating on that same premise, it, it's just a, a stunning thing to behold. And I remember doing a funeral at my previous parish of a, uh, you know, woman in her 70s and just one of the largest funerals I've ever done in my life. 
and there was uh, joy and there was excitement uh, in the midst of the sorrow and there was comfort and there was peace and the love was just uh, awe-inspiring to see all of it. And I remember making the, uh, quoting the proverb, uh, better a, a feast of herbs where love is than, you know, a, or better a, a snack or dinner with herbs where love is than uh, a fattened calf where there's hatred. And I'm sure I'm butchering that quote, but uh, I just remarked to the entire assembly, uh, look at look at the room, just observe what's happening. I said, this experience, um, and they had to rent out a community center just to fit everyone in. Um, this happened because these two people made a commitment to love one another. And they uh, honored that commitment, and they did love one another. And I said, if this is the kind of impact you can have on a community when they commit to love just one other person, imagine, just imagine what kind of community and goodwill there is when somebody is capable of doing this for more. And I was moving them toward Christ, who loves perfectly all people, not just one other. So it, this this passage, it just sings for me, it really does. It just sings to my heart about a beautiful image of what Christ has in store for those who have been reclaimed from the feudal ways of their fathers, which is all about me and what can I get and how can I use others to get there. Mm-hmm. The the same character pervades the next verse as well. We'll take all, all three short commands together. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. All of those, I think, go with the the idea of outdoing one another and showing honor that this is a, a purposeful, I, I don't, I think the word intentional is overused, but intentional matter of, I, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm aiming for this, maybe is the way to say it. This is, this is my goal. This is my aim. Yep. Um, I, I agree. I, I've always uh, laughed at slothful and zeal because in my mind that's just an oxymoron. Hmm. Like zeal is not slothful by nature. By nature, right? So, like, so I made a joke with a friend the other day who said individual communion. I said, "Isn't that impossible?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, slothful and zeal. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's almost like the verse nine: "Let love be genuine." Hmm. Zeal be Zealous zeal, you know. Hmm, hmm. That, Very zealy. That last that last phrase of, of eleven stands out slightly to me. Serve the Lord in the midst of all of this, simply because the majority of this text, I think, has to do with what we would call the second table of the law, my service toward my neighbor. But in the middle of all of it, Paul reminds us service to the Lord start is where it starts. Right. Right. Also, as we might see in Matthew 25, uh, a service to our neighbor is a service to our Lord, Hmm. Uh, not intending to neglect the first table of the law, um, which is which is also there. But serve the Lord with gladness, as your LWML ladies will remind you right quick. That's right. That's right. Rejoice in hope. Verse 12. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. If we think about what what Martin Franzman has in his commentary here, we had faith, we had love, now we've got hope coming in on this verse. Correct. Uh, Just a quick word on hope. Um, English users use the word hope differently than um, Greek users, and I'm sure you dealt with this at Romans 5.5, the whole uh, hope does not put us to shame, or the NIV in what might be a very unhelpful translation, <laughs> says, uh, hope does not disappoint us. I worked uh, in gas stations for 10 years of my life, sold a lot of Powerball tickets, and a lot of people were hoping they'd win, and a lot of people were disappointed. <laughs> uh, so uh, hope, uh, scripturally, is more of a confident expectation, uh, something you can hang your hat on, like the sun rising in the east. Um, so it, it will, it will occur. It's not up for debate. It's not wishful thinking. That's not what hope in scripture is. It's grounded in 
it's grounded in the reality and the promises and the confidence of Christ. Uh, even the Greek word uh, hope has kind of a faith word built into it. Uh, I've never done the hard labor here to prove that that's true, but Elpis sounds a lot like uh, pistis. So, um, so hope, yeah, Re- rejoice in confident expectation of what Christ will do for you um, on account of what he's already done for you. Uh, so there's that that rejoice, which then allows us to be patient in tribulation. Um, another phrase that was, I think, King James, uh, let me pull it up. I'm sitting at a computer, often translated patience as long-suffering, mm. which is a fantastic just a fantastic statement there. Um, be, nope, they, King James also used the word patient, but uh, be patient in, in tribulation, so hang in there, uh, and then uh, be constant in, in prayer or continuing in your prayer. Mm-hmm. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. One one more verse here before he, he turns the corner and really seems to focus on the matter of how to respond to those who would do us harm. Uh, right. Uh, contribute to the needs of... This is your uh, basic standard stewardship text. <laughs> contribute to the to the needs of the saints um, show and show hospitality. So uh, there is um, in our hymnal... Uh, I'm going to find it 788, I believe. Forgive us, Lord, for shallow thankfulness. Mm. It's a it's a hymn that is almost never sung because the tune is difficult uh, to. Uh, well, it's unfamiliar. It's not difficult, but it's unfamiliar. And um, it says, uh, "For I got to get the yes. Uh, forgive us, Lord, for selfish thanks and praise." for words that speak at variance with deeds, forgive our thanks for walking pleasant ways, unmindful of a broken brother's needs. And then the next stanza in the hymn is divided into three couplets. Uh, A forgive us stanza is always followed by a teach us stanza. So stanza four says, teach us, O Lord, true thankfulness divine that gives as Christ gave, never counting cost, that knows no barrier between, quote, yours and, quote, mine assured that only what's withheld is lost. And that's just stunning poetry and fantastic theology. That which you withhold is that which you lose. And so contribute to the needs of others, uh, particularly to the needs of the saints, and uh, it'll it'll be okay. Mm. You have confident expectation. You have hope uh, in what Christ will will, uh, provide and has done for you. Uh, I assure you, it's it's not in vain. Hmm. So. Starting with verse fourteen, then, and it's it's marked as a paragraph in the ESV, and I think you you said, Pastor Cook, that we should think about these verses together, fourteen through twenty one, dealing with the matter of not showing vengeance. Give us again a, just a, an overarching view of these, and then we'll take them one by one as we've been doing. Uh, right. The verse 19 has the quote from Deuteronomy, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so removed from the plate of responsibility of Christians is that of vengeance. Now I will run us to the parable or to the Sermon on the Mount where the whole turn the other cheek, the non-retaliation, the do not resist the evil one concept um, is is at play so it did uh does christ uh subject all things under his feet or does he not we're recording this on ascension sunday or ascension thursday so um this is in mind but Mm. we we can entrust ourselves to uh the lord uh who judges justly just as christ did And uh, when Christ was arrested and betrayed, he continued to trust in the Lord, and he did not demand uh, to exercise his rights uh, as a citizen. He knew the court was corrupt, uh, and yet like a sheep before it shears the silent, so he opened not his mouth. Uh, It was the Lord's will that he should suffer these things, and he continued to trust the Lord. 
and he did not take vengeance into his own hand in spite of the many calls for him to do so uh, by Peter, by the thief on the cross, by the mockery of the crowds. And, uh, and you might say, well, what did that get Jesus? Well, it got him dead, but it also got him raised from the dead. Mm. So he trusted the Lord. He didn't take vengeance into his own hand. And yet, uh, yeah, he died, but he was vindicated. Uh, in the best way possible. And now he is raised from the dead, and he will neither suffer nor die again. And that's pretty remarkable. So uh, we live in the imitation of Christ on this way. Uh, We will, because we live in a broken world, endure a lot of brokenness. And it, it is not our responsibility, this should not be our chief concern or aim to somehow rectify every evil in the world that doesn't mean we shouldn't love justice and pursue it but it you know it not everything needs to be uh, well i gotta fix that right now uh god is the one who will come again to judge the living and the dead um he's a better judge than you are anyway because he knows more information than you have available to you so a, a better mode is to uh endure suffering be patient in tribulation, as we saw above, rejoicing in hope, and then overcoming these terrible things with with good, as mm. Jesus did. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that last verse, verse 21, really helps to summarize this, and, and we'll come to that. I want to let you conclude with, with your thoughts on that verse, because I, I really think that that— with, as you brought out, when, when I see the injustice in this world, when I see evil— as, as Paul said earlier, abhor what is evil. Well, well, what does that look like? How is that overcome in this life? That's where that last verse in this chapter is really going to help us out. So, so we'll, we'll build to that grand finale with about 11 minutes here. So verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. I think there's that, that double bless, if we'll count that as one for the together. Right. Bless and do not curse. Take us to verse 14. Very simple. Um, if uh, at some point, try to think of it in terms of spiritual warfare. Mm. If uh, Satan is afflicting you or tempting you, and so you suffer uh, pain and sorrow at the hands of some other individual, okay, you can let that sin pass through you and then increase as you return it toward someone else, or you can let it stop with you, and you can forgive and offer a prayer of blessing. Um, So when you bless those who persecute you, at least if you are standing in the shoes of Satan, at some point that becomes counterproductive, right? Mm -hmm. If if every time uh, we're persecuted, it results in a blessing, well, then what's the point of persecuting? you know, on, on the spiritual warfare kind of uh, tabulation of things. Mm. Like, oh, well, I was hoping that maybe they would uh, lose their temper and throw a fit or break something or uh, curse or use foul language. I thought I thought maybe this persecution would only increase sin and chaos in the world. But if every time you suffer persecution, you bless somebody, it just becomes counterproductive. Mm. This is a good thing to do. Difficult. Oh my goodness, it's difficult. I just challenged my congregation in this recently, and uh, and it's become a kind of a smiling. We all know how difficult this is. Uh, inside joke, as we kind of, you know, that person is kind of that. Like when you told me to pray for the person, that doesn't make me happy. So, uh, yeah, it's what we. It's hard. Oh my goodness, it's hard because we we want to play God. We want to get that vengeance, but we're, mm-hmm. we're called to do differently. Mm. I think I think that leads into verse 15, the matter of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. That seems the opposite. I mean, if someone's persecuted, I, I think they go together. Maybe there, there's a connection there. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to flesh it out, but maybe you can. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, and we can, I'm just going to, I there's a, a book published by CPH called Ladylike, and there is an entire essay on this verse, specifically how difficult how the harder part of this verse is the rejoicing with those who rejoice because we are prone to covetousness. Mm. 
And so think of the woman who suffers the sorrow of barrenness, finding out that her sister is expecting her third child. Mm. And her, her, first, her gut reaction is not, I'm going to rejoice with her. Uh, it is to be angry, it's to be embittered, it's to be jealous. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, is that is the more difficult one. But to, to shed a tear with someone who's uh, lost a loved one, that, that's, significantly, that's significantly easier. So you go buy the book, Ladylike, by CPH, uh, and, uh, and read that essay and learn from it. It's very, very helpful. Um, but then, you're right, this is uh, when you uh, weep with those who weep instead of hey, there's somebody who's weeping. I'm going to go strap on my firearm and go try to make right in the world like every vigilante movie you've ever seen. Um, that, that's not blessing those who persecute you either. Mm-hmm. Live in harmony, verse 16. Live, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Um, well, let's take those together, and then we'll spend the rest of the time on 17 through the end. Uh, right, so um, work work with one another, which is anyone who's uh, in a family and not living by themselves knows that's difficult. Um, don't be haughty or arrogant, and a good way to not be haughty and arrogant is to associate with the lowly. Um, so, the uh, how does you know, parishioner at my last uh, parish said uh, the shepherd should smell like the sheep. Um, and, uh, yeah, fair enough. There's, uh, there's work to do. It's not always pretty, uh, or glorious work, but, uh, you associate with the lowly. Uh, they are ones for whom Christ died. He certainly associated with the lowliest, uh, each one of us. So, uh, and arrogance is just repulsive. So try to, try to avoid that one. Anyone can smell it from a mile away and it's not humble. And it's arrogance is all about, Hey, everybody acknowledge and tell me how right I am. And humility is, how can I serve you? You might have something to offer that I don't yet know. Mm-hmm. Verses 17 through 21, then, I, I think, and we've said they, they all kind of go together, verses 14 through 21, but verses 17 through 21, again, there's there's multiple commands, but they seem to really now flow from each other one after the other. Don't repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Pastor Cook, we've got about five minutes to talk about the most important themes in those verses. Um, sure. Uh yeah, don't repay evil for evil um, is, a, is a pretty simple um, instruction to at least evaluate on paper. It's hard to live by because we want vengeance. So when Jesus, or when God says, uh, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, do you believe that or do you not? Like as Christians, we actually... Uh, believe that our Lord is Lord, or do we, or is it more of a, yeah, I know you said that, but I don't really believe you, Lord, or I, you know, so I'm just going to take matters into my own hands and handle it myself, which is, don't do that. Uh, He'll take care of it, and he'll take care of it on his own time. And, you know, the Lord took care of the injustice that Jesus suffered in his own time. Uh he vindicated him three days later. Okay, so, but it was a vindication, let me tell you. And, and he did it well, and he did it justly, and he did it for the, for the benefit and the sake of uh, humanity. So you can let the, leave the vengeance to him. Psalm 37 is worth looking. Verse 1, fret not yourself over evil. And I feel like this is a favorite pastime of Americans, uh, especially when... Uh, the president who is elected is not of the affiliation where you are. Uh, so we seem to just spend a lot of time fretting ourselves with, well, let me tell you what's wrong with the world today. Um, okay. Or here's an idea. Love one another w- with a brotherly affection. 
serve the Lord. And there's so much more you can do. Um, it's, it's, you spend all your time pursuing vengeance or trying to rectify every wrong that's been done to you. It, you're never actually going to serve anybody. Hmm. So let the Lord take care of the judging uh, and serve people, which that's the thrust of this. Then when you get to verse 21, which is just wonderful, don't be overcome by evil. And what's a surefire indication that you've become that you've been overcome by evil? If you repay someone evil for evil, you have become you have yeah become overcome by evil. <laughs> That's an awkward English turn of phrase. Um, if you're repaying evil for evil, then evil has overcome you. Mm-hmm. But the way you overcome evil is by uh, is with good. And so what is good in the sight of the Lord? Well, uh, good teacher, no one is good but God alone. What does God have the authority to do, and what authority has he given to his church? Uh, the, forgive, the authority to forgive sins. And so Christians, by patient suffering and endurance and tribulation, uh, and blessing those who curse and persecute them, they become dead ends for evil, which hurts, by the way, because evil is unpleasant and uncomfortable and painful. Um, But when you endure that yourself, and you bless people, and you overcome it, and you trust that the Lord will vindicate you uh, and, and defend your cause, then you can become the dead end for evil, and that is a holy and noble task. Evil's going to stop here with me. Uh, I'm not going to perpetuate this cycle. I'm going to I'm going to dam up this river of uh, evil deeds, and it's going to stop here. Um, and I will I will love and reflect Christ's love uh, to my neighbor, and in so doing, uh, lights to the world, salt to the earth. It's, uh, they will see our good deeds and and glorify not us, uh, but our Father who is in heaven. Overcome evil with good. Forgiveness is what cures the soul here. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Pastor Cook, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. I appreciate it very much. By the mercies of God, Paul appeals to the Roman Christians. He appeals to you and to me. God's mercy has made us who we are in Christ. What does that life look like? Here Paul lays it out. Christians become a a dead end for evil, showing forgiveness, the same forgiveness that our Lord Jesus Christ showed to us freely in his death and his resurrection delivered now to you and to me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.